The Bible's very first labor union is a group of midwives at the beginning of Exodus. They've received an order from the Pharaoh they simply cannot abide and decide to defy him and to defy a patriarchal paternalistic system and do what is best for themselves, for their bodies and their families. They are practicing what we would call today bodily autonomy. On today's episode of Mile High Theology, I am joined by the New Mexico Policy Director for Forward Together, an organization committed to rights, recognition, and resources for all families. Our guest will tell us how a special coalition of women in her state successfully resisted infringements on their rights through art. Yes, art. Please offer a warm Malhai theology welcome to Adrienne Barboa. Welcome, Adrienne. Hello. Thank you so much for having me here today. Thank you for joining us. And and, and also, um, I would like to give a shout out to our friends at Planned Parenthood of uh, the Rocky Mountains who connected us uh, once they learned that, that, that we wanted a guest who could speak to us about um, women-centric social movements and, and social power and art. And, and it's amazing. Um, to be with you tonight and, and to have this very special connection. Yes, thank you. So if you would just tell our audience, if you will, about Forward Together's most recent fight to repeal banning access to reproductive health care in New Mexico. Amazing. Thank you. Yes. Um, I'm so proud to be here this evening and speaking on this. Forward Together um, is the um, national organization I get to work for, and we believe in a state-based approach. So a lot of, so it's something I'm also very proud to be a part of. Um, I actually opened the Strong Families New Mexico Forward Together office um, eight years ago now. And um, and so it was like our first state-based site. And then we now have one in Oregon. We of course have a site in California where we're, our headquarters sort of is at. And then we have staff sort of across the country. But in New Mexico, I get to work um, and when I say state-based, it really means for us that we, um, you know, send our information from the states sort of up to the national, and, and that's how our national work is informed. Um, but in New Mexico, we are one of the states that actually has on the book some of the greatest access for abortion care in, in the nation. Um, and that means, I, when I say on the books, it's because it really does mean like written law, right? But um, if you're if you're ever near policy, sometimes that policy doesn't always hit the ground, or we do have great access, but we also um, have this old bill from 1969 that um, was previous to this conversation in state in our criminal state statute um, that legislators in 1969 decided that if people were to if doctors were to perform abortion care or if women or families were to seek abortion care they could be criminalized for it and with the passing of Roe v Wade um, in 73 um, that 
that criminal statute was null and void. <clears throat> um, but we know that coming um, up, that there's possibilities to that the Supreme Court may chip away or or gut Roe v. Wade altogether. Um, so we wanted to remove that old abortion ban, which will keep protections and make sure ensure that New Mexico continues to have safe and legal abortion care in our state. And really for much of the country, as, as much of the country has um, been banning, creating abortion bans across different states. So the fight that we just, um, I was, there were folks mentioning today, because there was an article that came out about it in our local newspaper, um, really about how historic this win was, right? And um, <clears throat> historic because when we we didn't we're, we've learned a long way around working directly with our our broad communities across our large state that has large populations of native american large large hispano latino mexicano populations um and and we've learned and very rural so much of our state is so rural much like Colorado um, that we've learned in, in really um, talking to communities across the state that we um, that those communities are not nuanced and they're often been typecast or mythicized as being um, you know uh, against access to abortion or against reproductive health and justice overall and so we've spent the time and been able to really show that we're not um, this polarize that abortion doesn't have to be this polarizing issue that either you're with us or against us, but um, the things that our communities have taught us and that I'm always proud to say is that I can hold my own moral views on abortion and still trust a woman and her family to make that decision for themselves. Um, so that's the win we had. We repealed that bill. We um, got it through both um, House and Senate chambers, and the governor actually signed it just last Friday. So um, we, not this past Friday, the Friday before. So we have this historic win in our site, um, and it means that ensures that we'll have access to abortion care in our state that's safe and legal. And I, I'm excited to talk today about how we use art and um, conversation um, to really achieve that win. So yeah, please, please tell us, I mean, the momentum is already there. So just tell us about the role that art played in your, in Forward Together's public campaign um, and, and, and this recent win. Thank you. Um, yeah, so Forward Together is a national organization, as I mentioned, and we're lucky to really, our executive director for Evelyn Shen um, and our whole organization, we're so leaderful, um, really recognizes and can look to our movement to the past and know that art and um, things that resonate with our communities is how we do the community organizing on the ground, right? Um, for many years, I'd see a lot of academic things happen. And although I went to college, it was sometimes just not the space that attracted me, right? But when I see images that look like and feel like me or remind me of my cousins or my grandma or remind me of the power that we have as communities, um, that's what has really, that's what attracts me and, and we've successfully seen how much it, so we're really learning from all the movements of the past and continuing on those those winning moments. But we have a, a artist in residence that has, um, that is, you know, 
compensated as art, that's another piece of doing this um, sort of art is power work, is really to make sure our artists are compensated um, and that they're, and that how they get credited for the work, all of that goes into the details. But again, for me, what has been as the organizer and policy director with my boots on the ground, it's being able, when people are able to see themselves, and we've literally done like our most recent, our artwork for this bill was um, one of our, um, two of the women that we work closely with, actually their whole family, um, where are, have been some of the strongest voices. They're both, um, it's, it's a mom and daughter and the, um, they're from Navajo Nation, they're Diné women. And, you know, the picture is, it was actually a photo of, of the mom in the middle, the um, daughter sort of standing next to her with her three daughters. So really three generations of Diné women and the art, and it was, you know, it was a picture of them, but um, our artist sort of made it into a, a image, like a more um, art, you know, artful image with sort of a landscape in the background. And with the big words, honor all our women, honor our personal decision making. And, um, you know, when, again, like, between whether you're in Colorado or New Mexico or California or New York, um, you sort of can see when when somebody is is your people. <laughs> um, and so so for to be able to have that very strong, powerful image of three um, generations of Diné women, you know, standing and rising strong in their own power to say that um, they stand with access to safe and legal abortion care was everything, right? It was everything to who who we attracted to the bill, how we organized with them. And um and it was it was beautiful to see that um image as part of how the media talked about this, how we pushed it out on social media and even brought more folks in. And and it sounds like that there's something in some way that is a little um disarming. Yes, and um, the part that is disarming um, that is really helpful about art is that, you know, people can, again, I keep saying people see themselves, but it also just attracts you in a different way. Um, and then, you know, we're very conscious about um, meeting folks where they're at. So again, I've definitely talked about people seeing themselves in the art, but also the language we connect to the art. We're very clear that we are trying to be, if not overly inclusive, of um, the communities we want to work with, you know, low-income, rural, um, people of color, Black, Indigenous, and people of color communities. So that for us um, does help disarm the idea that this is anybody's one issue, but actually it is all of our issues and all of us, men, women, queer, trans, have reproductive health lives and stories. Um, and that's really what our work was about, both showing and sharing the stories of um, of all of our reproductive health lives. No, I appreciate that. And I think that that's you know, one of the, the great gifts that, that you bring to this conversation is not only that disarming, but saying, you know what, there is common ground in terms of reproductive health. There, there's not one of us who is not touched by this. This is, as with any fight, you know, any sort of social movement, any sort of um, social concern or political concern that an individual or a community might have, there are 
points of entry for people from who are not from those communities to to be in solidarity. Yeah. Um, you know, which is why um, something like Women's History Month or International Women's Day is is for women and is of interest to people who are not women um, as well. So talk to me a little bit. I, I loved what you said on Saturday when we were able to connect about the role that art, food, and culture plays in, in the movement and organizing um, that y'all are able to do it for it together. So please say a little bit more about that. Yeah, yes. Thank you so much for that question. I, you know, I, um, I've been organizing since I was a young person myself. And, you know, you hear about different models or different ways or, um, but, you know, really it is that same old organizing model, right? Keeping, stay connected, make sure, meet people where they're at and provide what our families need. You know, sometimes I'll go into meetings and, you know, they'll be having a conversation about the bus system and they will be like, we wrote, we reached out, we put a thing in the newspaper and nobody gave us any input. I'm like, well, you're, it's the bus system. Just get on the bus, right? <laughs> Talk to people on the bus. And, um, and I feel the same way about that. Art is one of the big tools that help us connect directly with the communities. We want to be reaching out to the communities that are overlooked or underserved. Um, and so when we are able to, we're, we, we always center how our art um, both reflects those communities that we're trying to reach out to. Um, and, you know, and in the same stroke, like I, I was, um, we, we go to, I, I've been privileged enough to get to work in some of the most rural communities in our state here in New Mexico. We mostly put our rev our um, our resources and interest into McKinley County, which is 70% Native American population, mm -hmm. and it borders with Arizona um, and and um, Colorado, actually, or it's a, a county down from Colorado. And then our second place is um, Doniana County, which borders with Texas and Mexico. So um, when we're in those spaces, people would be like, oh, communities don't care. They're too apathetic. Um, but we just started building. We had a small core group of like 10 folks that we got from one of the that we um, were able to talk to. We did some surveys on healthcare. Um, again, using art to attract folks into talking, having a conversation with us about healthcare. Um, and then we really start kept building from there and kept inviting and showing up for them. That meant for us, um, including cultures that were in the room, um, asking people to share languages and having internet um, interpretation when we could. Um, it's also meant that we always have food, a, a good meal, not just like some, you know, cheap pizza, which I know, you know, all of us struggle, but where we, where, but we all do also determine where we put our resources. And mm -hmm. I tell folks sometimes, right, like we actually give when, when we have hundreds of people in small little communities across Mexico show up to our meetings outside of COVID, of course, um, but that's been our experience. And it's really just been providing the resource to make sure that we have good food that folks can feel that they can come and get a good warm meal for their families with their families 
and that we um, have child-friendly, family-friendly spaces. So that the kids there that are ready, we don't provide direct child care, but everybody's kids are there and, and we don't get mad if they're too loud or there's a baby crying. Um, it, it's really, it is. And that has meant all the success for us. And mm-hmm. then it's meant we have in most, in both our counties, actually, we have four generations of folks coming to meetings all the time. And then they're inviting their cousins and their friends. So when we say strong families, we really have like whole families that come to our meetings and organize and keep bringing in more of their families. And I would say it's really just because we're making that space feel comfortable, welcoming, and friendly to them and and that they can see themselves in what we're doing and hear themselves as valued and respectable um, folks that are important to our movements. Amazing. And, you know, I, I think that that is one of the things that I take for granted working in a church that we're an intergenerational community um, and most churches are intergenerational. And, um, you know, sometimes that can be a weakness in a social movement or, um, you know, a, a public campaign and things like that when, when there's not buy-in across generation. And it sounds like you, your form of movement building and, and empowering people and being a leaderful movement is that at its core is that it's intergenerational and that, you know, you welcome as many people um, as you can to build that power. I'm Broderick Greer, host of Mile High Theology, and I'm joined by Adrienne Barboa, New Mexico Policy Director for Ford Together. And if you have any questions or comments, please put that in the Facebook or YouTube comment section, and we will get that question or comment to Adrienne. Adrienne, for those who are concerned about ongoing access, and this kind of really brings us back to our initial question, but for those who are concerned about ongoing access to reproductive health care, abortion care, during this pandemic and after, what is your advice as to how one can stay engaged and vigilant in the months and years to come? Thank you, that's an excellent question because it it really takes all of us, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Like we've had this historic win, but we have to, and and not just on this issue, but on every issue, right? And I I know it's hard, but, um, you know, being as informed as as we can so that there's some, the sneak attacks or um, the, the threats to, that want to chip away at, at access and um, are, are that we're aware of them and ready to really stand back in solidarity. Um, so I would, you know, one I'd say like in your local areas, if there are folks organizing, um, even the smallest groups make a big impact depending on, especially depending on where you're at. For us, Ford Together, we'd love to be your organizing home. Um, And we do do, like I said, across the country um, organizing. And while we are a national organization, we always send out stuff that is going specifically, um, that is happening specifically in the states we work in, but also how to stay connected nationally. So FordTogether.org, there's a join us kind of link on there. Um, Love to have you. Um, And um, I think on there we also have some resources about local organizations or partner organizations that are in our Strong Families Network um, Mm -hmm. that might be in your local, in in the place where you live. Um, I know there are 
um, Strong Families Networks in Colorado, um, Colod, and um, gosh, there's another organization. I should have wrote it down before I got on this call. But there are some great um, or reproductive justice organizations that are in our Strong Families Network, um, and they're doing amazing work for Colorado. Um, I would also say, you know, it, there is a big um, need because as we see the Supreme Court and possible threats to chip away at access to care, abortion care and reproductive health care in general, um, that we, um, you know, really New Mexico, Colorado and Nevada are some of the most safe spaces for mm. access. So in reality, while the rest of the country um, is, is, is desperately fighting against some of the bans, a lot of those are already in place. And actually, New Mexico, Colorado, Nevada um, happen to be the some of the greatest access we have in our country. And that also means that then a lot of people travel to our states to access abortion care because they can't in the states that they um, live in. Um, and yeah, and that's dangerous, right? It's dangerous for the woman, it's dangerous for the family, and it's also completely restrictive because if you can't afford it, um, then there, then if you can't afford to travel, to take off of work, to do all the things it takes to to travel, um, just for you know for healthcare, um, then that that's a huge barrier. So yes, please stay involved. There are abortion funds, National Network of Abortion Funds, and in our state, there's some specific funds that also help folks that are traveling from out of state. Here in New Mexico, we have the um, Indigenous Women Rising Abortion Fund and the Mariposa Fund that also helps specifically um, immigrant women access mm. the care that they may need. Well, and I, I don't think I told you this, but I grew up in Texas. And, um, you know, in recent years, there has been um, a very concerted um, if you will, um, push against access to reproductive health care. Yes. Um, in my home state, our family is has been there for six generations, and um, I'm one of the only ones to, who doesn't live there still. But you know, I read an article years ago that, that is just deeply concerning and about um, the travel that people seeking reproductive health care have to go through taking time off work. You know, what if they don't have a car? Um, you know, Texas doesn't have the greatest um, sort of um, transportation within the state. It's a yeah. humongous state. So it's very difficult to get from city to city, especially if, you know, you're a woman of color who is of a certain class, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and, and if you would say more, it seems like we haven't gotten many questions. So I would like to dive a little bit deeper in on this regarding um, how one's social location. So if I'm an indigenous woman, if I'm a black woman, if I'm um, an, a woman who is an immigrant or a migrant, um, English might not be my first language how is it more difficult for women belonging to those demographics um, in terms of access to reproductive health care as opposed to to maybe white women who might be upper middle class or middle class 
Yeah, I have so much to say about this, but you know, one of the first, you know, because the um the repeal abortion ban that we just repealed, that bill, um that criminal statute that was on the book that we just successfully repealed. Um, you know, that was in 1969, a time when before Roe v. Wade, and we actually talked to a lot of women in our state, and they shared their stories that um, did access abortion care when it was, quote unquote, illegal. And um, they were all the ones we were able to find and talk to. Um, well, actually, aside from one, they were all white, uh, sort of affluent women or connected to an affluent partner. And, you know, they, they say it in their own story, right? Like they could have never afforded to first go to Chicago, then get sent to Mexico. And they had a boyfriend who had a credit card or someone else who helped pay for all of that to happen, to get the abortion that they wanted pre pre Roe v. Wade. Right. So, um, yeah. And, um, you know, those are, they shared, some of their most vulnerable, heartbreaking stories, and they're very clear that that access would not have happened without without some wealth behind it, without access to um, the kind of money they needed to make that for traveling, uh, literally in airplanes, and often across country, across um, borders. Um, so that that was true then, and it actually continues to remain true. Right after Roe v. Wade passed, um, the you know anti-abortion folks came back with the Hyde Amendment, which prohibits state um, Medicaid dollars, prohibits federal Medicaid dollars mm-hmm. from being used to access abortion care. Um, and that may seem reasonable to some folks, but who that really puts a barrier between is low-income folks. Um, because if you cannot use the health care that, whether it's subsidized health care through Medicaid or your local exchange, if you can't use that to access abortion care when you may need it, that means that you don't have the same or equal access to affluent folks who can pay for their access. Um, at the beginning of this conversation, I said that New Mexico has some of the greatest access on the books, um, but we actually only have three abortion providers in our whole entire big state, right? We are the fifth largest in mass, and although we have a just um, about a two million, just over two million population total, but we are a very rural, very large in mass state, and we only have three abortion providers across the state. So that means that, um, you know, some of the greatest access is still very limited, especially when you have to travel, um, especially when you have when there's so much shame and stigma. You know, we heard so much this year from indigenous women. Um, actually, during COVID, you mentioned Texas. They actually, um, their government put a stop. They did not call abortion care services essential. So that basically for a period of about three months closed all their abortion clinics in Texas. That meant that Colorado and New Mexico were receiving almost all those requests for care. Of course, that meant a whole bunch of people that didn't know how to, couldn't travel, couldn't um, do the things, or didn't have, couldn't afford to get here, um, were left out from that care that they may have been seeking. Um, so yes, that's there are huge barriers to how we access the care and what it really looks like. I think people hear that and they think that there's like abortions around every clinic. Um, that's just not true. And we, when I say we have three providers, we know them intimately. One of the providers that is here, she 
started off because she was a midwife um, and she started um, doing abortion care because she actually, through her practice as a midwife, realized that she, that this was a need for um, women and families and, and that was her path to this. So, um, like I said before, we all have a reproductive health story and as you started our conversation um, this morning, this today with that prayer, we have to trust and respect when women speak to us about what they need. Mm, amazing, and that's a great um, segue to a question from our audience from Dion, who says, I'm curious about the other types of outreach that Adrienne and her supporters have done to make sure the message and art reaches those who may not necessarily embrace reproductive rights or justice. Thank you so much for that, Deanna. It's exactly what we're talking about when um, what we've done is, you know, both make sure whether it's through radio or, um, you know, radio and, and really um, targeting, I still use the word target, but as a as an outreach method um, to reach to those communities. Where are our folks listening? Where What media sources? We've done um, surveys among communities and paid folks for their time in taking the survey to really get out what their needs. And then we do a lot of, um, I said, talked about good old organizing, whether that be door knocking or phone banking. Um, and then, like I said, getting people to invite their cousins, family, sisters, friends. Mm -hmm. And most of the time, people walk in because for so long, we've been like this, you're with us or against us on abortion. And I, you know, when in 2013, we won the Respect ABQ Women campaign. And I believe that's how we won. We really worked towards depolarizing the message of the reproductive justice movement. Mm -hmm. We are... Um, everyone in my family is not so clearly with us or against us, right? There's most people um, in any social justice, but specifically when we're talking about abortion access, most people are somewhere in between. And most people, I would say, from the work I've got to, got to do over the last 15 years, most people actually side with personal decision making. They agree that they can have their own moral opinion about abortion and still trust people to make complicated decisions for themselves. You know, in New Mexico, and I'm, I know that similar to Colorado, you know, our families make tough decisions every day about whether to access health care or pay their bills, whether to, um, you know, if they're a farmer, if the droughts come along, how are they going to make it through the winter, right? Like, we make tough decisions on our own about our families every day. So this is um, the access, the decision whether to access abortion care or not is really that for the woman and her family and should she go to her faith leader um, that's really for her to decide and to make that decision so we've been able to successfully get into those conversations by not being polarizing um, and having the art and distributing it into community we go to food banks we go to WIC offices um, we're in the places that are um, very community oriented um, we don't rely for us you know facebook and internet isn't always the best we actually stopped doing a lot of emails because we had a less than one percent open rate mm. but what we started to do then was everything we were at or when we're doing our list building we were we would ask people for their cell phone numbers and mm. started texting and those text programs they are 99 percent open rate <laughs> 
Um, so we, you know, that has been a successful way. We use text. We use, um, you know, we actually still use snail mail. <laughs> and, and we, again, try to target folks by, you know, going to the radio stations they listen to or being at laundromats was one of the best places. We would put our posters up, ask people to reach that. We actually got a lot of people from laundromats in Gallup, New Mexico. Mm -hmm. So that's thank a, you for that question, Dion. That is a great question. And and that I think that's the only question we have time for. Um, Adrienne, I, I just, I really can't thank you enough. I've learned so much this evening. Um, I'm so encouraged by your work. Um, you know, when, when you're back at work tomorrow, please tell all of your coworkers um, that they're in our prayers, that they're in our love, um, you know, and, and that, and, and I hope that all of us leave this conversation knowing that our struggles, our suffering, the, the difficult decisions that we make um, are never in isolation, um, that we do all of this together and we want to do as much as we can to support each other and love each other um, as as we walk and will through um, such difficult lives, even outside of the pandemic. <laughs> Before the pandemic, our lives were difficult and, and, and it's just so compounded right now. So thank you. Thank you. And thank you. I really appreciate this time. I'm so glad to meet you and be um, have access to your listeners and followers. Thank you. Absolutely. And and of course, we will make sure that Adrienne's um, information and information about Forward Together and, and their good work is in our show notes. Mile High Theology is a production of St. John's Cathedral and Episcopal Church in Denver, Colorado. To financially support the work of Mile High Theology, visit sjcathedral.org forward slash give. I offer special thanks to our friends at Planned Parenthood First of the Rocky Mountains who connected us with Adrienne Barboa, our guest, for whom we give great thanks this evening. Our communications director and producer, Evans Owsley. Our cathedral administrator, Georgie Brooks-Myrtle. Our theme music composer, Noah Glenn. And you, our loyal listeners. This podcast was recorded on the land of Ute, Cheyenne, and Arapaho peoples. We give God great thanks for the 48 contemporary tribes that are historically tied to the lands that make up the contemporary state of Colorado. Join us on Monday, April 19th, when poet Natasha Olodokan joins us for a special National Poetry Month episode of Mile High Theology. Please rate and review Mile High Theology on Apple Podcasts to enhance our digital visibility. Thank you. God bless you. See you next month.